evening. Uh, it is uh, really good to, to, to sing and to think on uh, the Lord at this time. It's very easy, isn't it, to get swept up and, and in the business of Christmas and forget about the real reason that, that we even have uh, Christmas. Um, firstly, I wanted to uh, say thank you all for uh, your, your kind uh, wishes and cake and everything like that uh, regarding one and I, our 20th wedding anniversary. Uh, I especially want to thank the vast majority of you who, after shaking Juanita's hand and congratulating her, followed on with sentences like, I can't believe that you stayed with him that long. Um, <laughs> You must, God must have gifted you with much grace. Uh, you know, you deserve a medal. <laughs> but what if it's not like that? What if it's the other way around? <laughs> yeah, no, nah, thought I was going to pull that off. Didn't work. <laughs> too many people know us too well. No, seriously, thank you. Uh, honestly, you know, it was our wedding anniversary. Was it Wednesday? It was Wednesday. As far as I can tell, it was Wednesday anyway. But I, look, honestly, I didn't know. I honestly didn't know 20 years ago what, what God, how, how good God was to me. I didn't understand the blessing that, that, that I was getting at that time. Uh, I, I really didn't understand it. Uh, and so, you know, I'm grateful to him every day for, for my wife. And, and you, know, you know, she's lucky to have me, really. Um, so... <laughs> But anyway, that's not the message, although it could be. I could probably sit on that for a while. Now, really, what I wanted to do tonight was... Um, really, tonight's message, as you can probably tell, is about the tabernacle. Um, and I've entitled this Insights from the Tabernacle. Um, really, it's just three sort of simple devotional sort of insights. It's a mishmash of different things that have sort of devotional thoughts that have, I think have come together. Uh, that show us a bit of in, give us a bit of insight into into the Lord, into the tabernacle, into into how God works, how God works with people. Um, I've, I'll have a couple of pictures up at some point to uh, a little bit of a show and tell and things like that. I may even do a bit of a tap dance if it's not going too well. Um, but it's really look if you've never studied the tabernacle before, it is well worth the study. Um, Back when we were up at the Sunshine Coast at Sunshine Baptist, I, um, you know, the Lord just put it on my heart to, uh, to study the, the tabernacle and I taught the, uh, the adult Sunday school class up there for nine months on the tabernacle. Now, you may go, <laughs> like nine months, but really the depth, of, the depth in this is unbelievable because everything that is in that tabernacle, everything that went into to getting the, the, uh, the equipment, the people... All, everything that was needed to build this tabernacle, right through to the building of it, right through to what took place in it, every bolt, every piece of wood, every little piece of silver, gold, every single piece in that tabernacle points to Jesus. Every single little piece points to him. And it is, it is quite amazing. So um, I just want to read a verse to you, and, I, and it's Romans 15.4. Uh, probably one of my favourite verses in, in the Bible because it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. See, what we read in this book is not just, you know, nice to know stories. And I know that you know, the majority of us know that. But God's specifically placed these 
words in scripture for our learning. Um, He had the choice of an eternity of things that he could have put in there for us, but he chose very carefully what should be in there. He uses things that we can relate to to explain things that are beyond our understanding. And the tabernacle is one of those types, one of those things. And why does he do this? Because I think he does this because rarely does he do things the way that we think it should be done or how we would even do it. And he rarely uses the people we think that should be used. See, studying the tabernacle tabernacle gives insight into how God operates. Uh, What is seen in the tabernacle that was built some 3,000 odd years ago, it is not an isolated event that is restricted to that time only. Many of the lessons that we can see in the tabernacle are played out amongst our personal lives and, even, and it's even reflected in, our, our, in this church, in our local New Testament church today. So I want to give us some context uh, before we launch into it. Just so I'm not going to go into any great detail about the tabernacle. There's a couple of things I want to point out. Um, if uh, this is on, that's the one. I didn't draw that. I was going to say I did, but I just noticed that there at the bottom there is someone's... <laughs> yeah. Not winning tonight. So here's some context. So Exodus 25, 8 said that God said this. He said, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So God, was, God wanted to have a particular place that he could dwell among his people. So what was the tabernacle? Well, really, the tabernacle was just a portable structure where God chose to dwell in the midst of his people. Um, It was a big tent that uh, looked very plain from the outside, but it was magnificently beautiful on the inside. See, Exodus 29, 45 and 46 says this. He said, And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I mean, this was a bit of a revelation for, uh, for Israel because they were about to see some things about God they'd never seen before and a lot of it was going to come through this. So what, why is the tabernacle important or even relevant to us today? Well, because, from the, as I said before, from the very way the materials were obtained, the furniture that was used, even through to the finished work and the ordinances that went on in it for some 500 years they all foreshadowed and pointed to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this reason, God gave very detailed instruction to Moses on every aspect of it. If you look through the book of Exodus, you look through the book of Leviticus, you can see how very detailed God was about what was, how this was, thing was to be built and what was to go on in there. And the reason for this was because it all pointed to the Lord. There are 50 chapters in the Bible that are dedicated to the tabernacle and the instructions on building it. 50 chapters. So, with a little bit of uh, that background there, let's have a look at uh, Insight 1. And and the first thing that I think the the tabernacle gives us insight into is what to focus on. So, up the back here is just like a little... is this this drawing. Um, You can see that the tabernacle sits in here... And this was like a white linen, pure white linen fence around there. You had, uh, and we'll go through what was in there uh, a bit later on, but encamped all around it were the 12 tribes of Israel. They had specific places that they were to be for for reasons, um, which we won't go into. 
But um, you'll see that the tabernacle was the central focus. It sat in the centre of those 12 tribes. And it was the central focus in Israel of all matters of worship, governance and leadership. That's what the tabernacle was. But it's an interesting thing. And I think even this, this, actually, this picture actually does portray it a little bit. If you have a look at the 12 tribes and how the, the, the layout of the tents... One of the things that I found interesting, now, I couldn't find it in Scripture, but I'm going to make an assumption based off a number of other things in Scripture. Have a look at the opening of the tents and which way the opening of the tents are faced. They're all faced inward, towards the tabernacle. You say, well, why is that, why is that strange? Have a think about where Israel was. Israel was not in a nice, safe place, you know, where everybody loved them. And everybody was happy and more than glad that they got out of Egypt and were coming into their lands to, you know, eventually take it over. Israel had numbers of enemies all the way through their journey through the wilderness, right? But I believe every tent opening faced the tabernacle. And I believe that was the case because God, I believe, was saying, your focus, no matter what was going on out around here, was here. Now, if you, have, if you come from a military background, especially if you come from an army background, when you go out into a place where you have uh, unfriendlies and enemy, you never face inwards because the threat is coming from outside. When you pull up into a harbour, what's called a harbour, at the end of your patrol and you're going to rest up and, for the night, you, everybody sits on their packs and faces outwards and everybody sits and eats facing outwards and just eats. Why? Because that's the direction that the enemy comes from. If you're sitting facing inwards, well, you know, someone's going to sneak up on you and you can imagine that's not going to be much fun. Well, I can imagine that uh, if the tent opening is facing inwards, if you're this guy here, you're living in that tent... Well, you'd be more than happy, wouldn't you? It's like, well, get up in the morning, look, and there's the tabernacle. Oh, hang on. What do I, ah. I wouldn't like to be this guy up here. Because if his tent is fa- opening is facing towards the tabernacle, which it means the back of his tent is sitting out there in the wilderness and he has no protection. No protection at all. But see, God is showing Israel that he's the one who can protect them. They don't need to, you know, really, they didn't need to worry about what was going on out there. Um, God made it clear where they were to place their daily focus no matter what was happening externally. Even though they were in unfriendly and dangerous places, they were meant to rest in his presence and not be concerned with what was, with what was happening externally. See, 2 Timothy 2.4 says this, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. The focus is not meant to be on the affairs of this life. The focus is meant to be on him. That's the bit of insight there. See, have a think about today. How much could we worry about in today's, in today's world if we wanted to? I mean, have a look and just watch the news. It doesn't take much. You know, sit down for a half an hour news session on any given day and you can easily walk away with anxiety, depression and everything else. 
Um, you know, there's politics, there's war, there's the financial climate, there's the state of our nation, there's our own personal life issues, our hurts, our heartaches, our defeats, but the tabernacle reveals to us its first lesson, where to place our focus. In the, just to, uh, you know, as another Bible example of that, you know, in the midst of a severe storm, Peter focused on Jesus and walked on water. But the moment he took his eyes off him, you know what happened. He, when he focused on the storm, he sank. Same principle. So a bit of insight there on the orientation, just even the orientation of the tents around the tabernacle was that it's very clear where, we, where God wants us to place our focus. The second one, look, this is, uh, well, I'll actually, I'll get to the, the title of it in a minute, but this is the layout of the tabernacle itself. So you've got, you've got the gate, you've got that white linen fence, you've got the outer court with the altar and the brass wash bowl, and these were brazen. These were made of brass. And as you moved into the actual tent itself, you've got the holy place where you've got the golden candlesticks. So now we start to get gold comes into it. So brass, gold, table of showbread, the altar of incense in the holy place, and then the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. As you moved from the gate, you can imagine that there's the brazen altar and the, bra- and the brass wash bowl, and you know that all the sacrifices took place there, right? So whilst these, uh, this altar and the, bra- were, the brass wash bowl were probably very uh, unique uh, pieces of uh, equipment, what took place there was probably a bit ugly and a bit smelly and a bit, you know, maybe a little bit horrible. But the closer that you got to the Holy of Holies, which is where the presence of God is, the more beautiful things became. It went from the brass and the blood and everything else into gold and, uh, and, and shit in wood that was encased in gold, which, meant, which, which is a picture of, of where the humanity of, of, of the Lord and the deity of the Lord were, were captured together, where the gold, his deity, encapsulated his humanity. Gold would gold if you sort of cut it there in half or, or down the centre. And then you move into the Holy of Holies. So, as, as I said, the walls were made of shittim wood, overlaid with gold, which was that picture of his deity. But I want you to consider just for a minute this... Uh, is this the one? Yeah. This... This fence here, this linen fence that, that uh, surrounded the whole of the, uh, the tabernacle on that. I wonder if you imagine, and it was a fairly, it was high, it was, it was, you know, it was about eight or ten metres high, I think, something like that. It was, it was a fairly high fence. So I wonder if you imagine if you were standing right out the front of it and you were looking at it, what you would see at eye level. Probably what you'd see is this. That's what you'd see. Like, there's meant to be nothing there. It's, like, meant to be white linen. It's pretty clever, eh? Yeah. So, plain white. The outer appearance of the tabernacle would look like that. It's very plain. There's not much to see. Uh, You know, to stand and look at the outside, you'd hardly be drawn to it, Really? At eye level, you'd just be looking at a plain white sheet. Um, it's no work of art uh, that you could sort of stand there and look at it and soak it up for hours like you would at a, uh, in an art gallery. 
you can't admire its uh, colours or its lines, but you really can't see any beauty in it because it's just a plain white linen sheet. That's it. But see, the beauty of the tabernacle is not what it looked like on the, looked like on the outside, but rather the beauty was what went on on the inside, in, on the inside of those plain white walls and who it was that dwelt in there. See, to an outsider looking at the tabernacle, they would probably see no beauty in it, none at all. But however, the ones on the inside of that fence, the priests, had a totally different view of that. Completely different view. See, it's not till you step inside the gate that you begin to see the real beauty of what goes on within the, the, the walls or beyond just that plain white linen sheet. Um, and it's not only what was found in there and, you know, that, that, was, that was beautiful, it was the purpose of it as well. Uh, but as someone on the outside looking in, uh, all you'd see is plain white sheets. Um, a stranger on the outside and the priest on the inside had complete, two completely different views. And so it is with the natural man and the believer, the unsaved and the saved. See, the natural man's view of Jesus is summed up in Isaiah 53 too. It says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. See, the beauty of the Lord is not in what he looks like. The beauty of the Lord is in who he is. That white linen fence represents his righteousness, and the natural man sees no beauty in that. The unsaved man doesn't see the beauty of the righteousness of God. The sad fact is that, you know, there are many people who looked at Jesus and acknowledged that he existed and that even uh, what he taught was wise and that his teachings still impact the world today, but they simply state that he was not the one, he was just one of many. And a stranger looking at the tabernacle is the same thing. All they see is white sheets. Well, there's plenty of white sheets around but you've got to come through the gate and you've got to get past the white sheets to see what the reality of and then the beauty is. The true beauty of Jesus is lost to the natural man because his beauty is only seen through, the, through that spiritual discernment. That's the only thing that can break you through that white linen fence. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. You know, but now... Within that, uh, well, most of Israel, the vast majority of Israel, were never, never got past this. Most of Israel would probably have never seen inside that, I imagine. But now, and it was only the priests, sorry, it was only the priests, depending on what they did and what their job was, got to see here, and then there was only one that ever got into the, into the, into the presence of God, and that was only for once, once a year. But now, because of what Jesus has done, we get to be in the presence of God. We get unrestricted access. Unrestricted access into the presence of God. Quite amazing. I wonder how many people, I wonder how many of, how many of those three million odd Israelites would have loved to be able to get into there where the Shekinah glory of God was coming out just once in their lifetime, just to see what that was like. But they never did, because they couldn't. In fact, you know, none of these guys could either. 
But we get that. We actually get that now. Quite amazing, isn't it? So, the next bit, it's the third one, a bit of insight from the tabernacle, is on the God's pattern of using people. Um, if you turn to Exodus 31, you're going to see that uh, firstly in Exodus 24, it was Moses that was given the blueprint on Mount Sinai of what, how to build this thing. But in Exodus 31, in verse 1, we're going to read from verse 1 to 6, God, God, God actually tells us, the Bible tells us, who built it. He says, uh, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in cutting of stones to set them and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. And I behold, I have given with him Ahilahib, the son of that guy, of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted I have put wisdom that they may make all that I have commanded thee. So we just got a, we just got a list of names of uh, the very people that God used to build the tabernacle. What's interesting about that, those first six verses, or in fact anywhere else in the Bible, is that there's never any mention concerning the skill sets of any of the people God used. There was no mention of what skills that they had, whether they were tradesmen, whether they had... Oh, I don't know whether they were project managers back in that day, whatever they called them back then. Um, no mention of any skill sets. Well, so, so what? Well, see, what this shows us is that God will equip and use people on the basis of what he sees, not necessarily what skills we actually have. See, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And he sees deep into the heart of uh, any person to a depth that even, to a depth that even you know, the individual can't see. Um, what we see on the surface may not be what God sees in the deep. So who was Bezalel? No idea. There's no idea if he had skills prior to this, but I'm betting that if he did, they were minimal and they were no, nowhere, no match for the task that was ahead of him, that's for sure. And why do I think that? Well, think about God's economy. It's always the opposite of how we think. See, to live we must die. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The more you give, the more you receive. You know, those type of things. I think it's the same thing here. I don't know who Bezalel was, but I'd be surprised if he was a master craftsman because God said that he would fill him with wisdom and understanding and knowledge. So God was going to give it to him. So God gave, gave it to him. If Bezalel was a master craftsman before, then it would be easy to fall back on that and give credit to his skills for building the tabernacle. But I bet, and I wonder, I wonder how many times Bezalel walked past that tabernacle and looked when it was done and went, how, did I, how would I have done that? Did I actually do that? Have you ever, like, you know, if you've ever done any work in ministry or anything or you've written anything or you've, you've uh, done something and... And uh, you look back at it and you read, you, you come across it some years later and you look at it and you go, how did I do that? Where did that thought come from? I do it all the time. It's like, how did I, I can't, that couldn't have come. Did I actually write that? 
And I don't think it's my Alzheimer's that's kicking in. I just think it's the Lord who, you know, who does that. So uh, who was Bezalel? You know, Bezalel was just somebody God chose to do the job and he skilled up for it. Bezalel didn't need skills prior to it because God gave it to him for that job specifically and the proof was in the finished result. But I wonder how many people said, Bezalel? What? Who's, who's Bezalel? Yeah, I know him. He's no master craftsman. Why would you give that job to Bezalel? Got to have that wrong. I know Bezalel. I know his old man. I've lived in the tent next to him for the last, you know, however long. He, he, he can't rub two sticks together, let alone build a tabernacle. Who is Bezalel? I wonder how many people... I wonder how many of the three million-odd Israelites were more qualified to do the job than Bezalel was. I'm back in there had to be someone, but God just chose him for some reason, for whatever reason. Look at the apostles. It's not likely that we would have chosen any of them at face value, but look at what was said of Peter and John in the book of Acts, in Acts 4. Now when they, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marvelled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. I mean, it's pretty amazing that God, and, and all through the Bible, that God chooses people that we probably would never choose, ever, to do big things and to use mightily. And we applaud God for that and for the way that he chooses these very people who just simply don't seem to fit the part. I mean, look at the prophets and look at, you know, through the Old Testament. Just have a look at just about everybody that God chose to use in a big way. And it's like they are people who just are like, man, that doesn't really fit. For the vast majority of them. Just like the apostles. What happens when that, what, but, but, but what happens when that happens in our midst today? Do we applaud, the God, do we applaud God the same way? Do we, do we uh, look at somebody and think, hmm, I don't think God would ever use him or her or them. Nah, nah God would never do that. They don't fit the mould. They don't fit the, they don't dress right. They don't speak right. They don't do this, they don't do that. But there's a whole book of people that were just like that that God chose to use. I guess the fact is, what I'm saying is a bit of insight, is that we've got to be careful about what we look at on the outside because God doesn't look at that. We know that. He looks deep. But see, it wasn't just Bezalel and these couple of other guys that were chosen or played a part in the building of this tabernacle. See, turn to Exodus uh, 25 for a minute. And just so you know, like I'm literally just about done. I got like three more minutes and you're out of here. (laughs) Look at Exodus 25 for a minute. See, everybody had a chance to play a part in this. It wasn't just a few select people. There are a few select people for some select jobs, but everybody got a chance to be a part of this. Exodus chapter 25 said this, uh, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. 
And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and rams and skin, ram skins dyed red and badger skins and shittim wood, all for the light, spices for anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and the, breast, and the, and the breastplate and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Every person, every Israelite had an opportunity to be a part of this, to play a role. Um, and it was a, and God said, it's like you would think God would demand the offering, but he didn't. He asked for it. It was a free will offering. Verse 2 says, and bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly. Well, isn't that interesting? You would think, you would think, with something so important as the tabernacle that it would be a requirement. It's like, you need to bring this to me. But he didn't do it like that. See, this was a willing, this was a, uh, this was a uh, free will offering because just like the tabernacle represents the, the, the work and points to the work and the person of Jesus, he was the free will offering. This had to be a free will offering. Couldn't have been anything else because he willingly went to the cross. But what's interesting more, so, is that this Israel was a slave nation. Where did they get the gold from? Where did they get the silver from? Where did they get the linen from? Well, glad you asked. Slip across to Exodus chapter 12 for me for a minute. I'm sure you know, but, you know, it's fun just to go there. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 35. As they were just about to, to, to get out of, Israel, uh, get out of uh, Egypt, the Bible says, And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. So that's where they got all the gold, all the silver and all the oil and everything else that they needed that God was then going to ask them back, ask it back from them to build the tabernacle. They didn't have to work for it. God gave it to them. They didn't have to do a single thing to get all that was required to build the tabernacle. God gave them the spoils so they could be part of what God was going to do. Isn't he good? Isn't he good? Then amazingly, like I said, he didn't require it back. He just asked for it back. Now, here's God who's just given it to them like he gave it to them. If I gave you something and said, hold on to this, I'm going to require it later on down the track, then I'd expect that you would have it to give back to me because it's not really yours. Like you're just sort of holding it for me. Now, I know that he didn't tell them that, but isn't it insightful into how God uses people, how God uses us to, to, to do his work? If, like I said, free will offering. This is why God was so angry when they built the golden calf in Exodus 32. What did they build the golden calf out of? Mm, I'll read, you don't have to turn here, but Exodus 32. I said I was going to be three minutes from now, five. Exodus 32, 
And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in, your, in the ears of your wives, of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And they all broke it off. And they brought it to Aaron, and he received them at their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool. And after he had made a molten calf, and they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Whew. This is why God was so angry. What did... So we, we had a quick look earlier. What did gold represent in the tabernacle? The deity of Jesus, the deity of Christ. Israel just handed over the very thing that God gave them that they didn't work for. They handed it over, which represented the deity of Christ, and they built an idol out of it. How, is that, how, how, how does that, you know, what is that representative of today? Well... I guess what's interesting is we've got to be careful. You know, God's given us all something. God's gifted us. God's given us talents. God's given us many different things for, for his work. We, listen, you know, did you earn your spiritual gift or your spiritual gifts? Did you do anything? Could you have done anything to get it? No, you couldn't. It's gift of God. God gives it. That's why it's called a gift. But at some point, he may require that back. But what we've got to be careful to do is not to go and build an idol for it. You know, and that's a, look, that's a whole other message, which, funnily enough, I was toying with which one I was supposed to do tonight. But anyway, um, we've got to be careful not to use the very thing that God's given us for his glory and then go build an idol. So, Israel needed this tabernacle. You know, its presence meant that the presence of God dwelt among them. Uh, but the reality was that there was only a few that ever got to go inside, as we said, the walls, and let alone inside the tent itself. And it was only the priests who were ministering in there that got to see all that was, that was in there. And uh, there was only one that got to see right into that pre- into the, the very presence of God. And as I said earlier, we, we can do that. The dwelling place of God and man was the tabernacle. But then it transitioned from being a tent in the wilderness to a temple at Jerusalem. The dwelling place of God and man went from being a mobile tent to a permanent building, which was the temple. Then the dwelling place of God and man moved from the temple at Jerusalem to become Jesus himself. The dwelling place of God and man came together in one person. Being the, being the Lord Jesus Christ for a season. And then amazingly, amazingly, the dwelling place of God and man became man, became us. As a born-again believer, because of what Jesus did and the very, you know, what, because of what he did, the very presence of God dwells in us. The tabernacle and the temple, the presence of God dwelt amongst his people But since the Lord, the presence of God dwells in his people. The presence of God dwells in us tonight. Where once he dwelt among his people, he now dwells in his people. Quite amazing. Um, Again, that's it. That's all I got. Three short devotional sort of thoughts about the tabernacle, um, about uh, where we should focus what beauty really is 
and how God uses people. Trust that is an encouragement to you tonight. Um, I'll just close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, thank you that you uh, allow us to uh, be a part of what you do. Uh, Lord, we, we have nothing to offer of ourselves. Uh, we know that all things are, uh, and any glory that comes from uh, anything we do belongs to you. And so we thank you for that. Lord, would you uh, continue to uh, bless our pastor and his family as they uh, rest? Uh, would you continue to bless us, Lord, as we head into this Christmas period? Uh, we thank you, Lord. We love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.